I would encourage you to take out your Bibles, and if you would, to open to the book of Isaiah. It's the Christmas season, Advent season. One of the good things about Christmas is tradition. One of the bad things about Christmas is tradition. Um, Very often we do things out of tradition, we do things out of rote, we do things out of habit, and not always really think about what we're doing. As we come to the book of Isaiah, I'd encourage you to turn to chapter 9, that's where we'll, we'll be this morning, and I think it'll help you very much to have the text in front of you as we go through our message this morning. Isaiah 9, verse 2 It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It's a beautiful verse. It's a nice, warm, fuzzy verse. It's a nice verse that, you know, it's like a a big fuzzy sweater on a cold day where you put it on and it just, yeah, it's a great verse. But how does it really connect to Christmas? Or does it connect to Christmas? And if it does, what's the significance? And even if it is significant to Christmas, does it have any real significance to us today? Well, obviously I must think so if I've chosen this for our passage this morning. But I hope that by the time we're done, you'll agree with me that this passage not only connects to Christmas, but it is a wonderful, marvelous verse and passage for us to latch on to personally, even in the year 2021 or almost 2022. It'll help us to understand this verse a little more if we get just a little more of the context. It may answer some of those questions, what does it mean and how does it relate to Christmas? So let's just back up a verse and read verse 1. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Well, if you guys are as sharp as the first service, then you already caught the whole meaning of everything. You've answered all the questions. And I can just say amen and we can go home. But just in case, some of us might not have caught it. We need a little more than that. But notice something here in this verse that what we recognize is he's talking about a time of gloom and a time of anguish. To find out what he's referring to, we actually have to go back to the couple of chapters before this. And we're not going to go all the way back. We are going to spend a little time in chapter 8. But let me help set the stage because the other, these other chapters before this do that for us. They set the stage. This is being written, obviously, by the prophet Isaiah. And he's writing in the year 734 B.C. There's not many of us who were around back then. Just a few. But those of us who maybe have been around the church for a while, we may know that as Isaiah is writing here in 734 B.C., 
that about 200 years before this, the nation of Israel, the nation that was to be God's people, had a split, a divide, a civil war. And the the nation of Israel split into two nations, the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel became part of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the remaining two, Judah and Benjamin, became the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is living and writing in and prophesying, preaching in the southern kingdom of Judah to the people there. And but he's writing about things in these chapters, chapters seven, eight, and nine. He's writing about things that are going to impact and are going to happen among both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And as he's writing, things are bad, but they are going to get worse. As Isaiah writes these chapters, the nation is in a time of, the southern kingdom is in a time of national turmoil. Now the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they started off with a split, a break, there was a civil war. And then over the next 200 years, there have been times where the two nations got along and there are times where they didn't and they fought. And right now, there's tension between the two. Specifically, the issue is that, first of all, there is, there's turmoil everywhere because off the map, the majority of it, there's a kingdom or an, or an empire called the Assyrian kingdom or Assyrian empire. It's not really an empire yet, but Assyria is growing in power. They are on the rise. They're becoming very powerful and they're becoming a threat to everybody in the region. And they're becoming such a threat that Israel to the north of Judah has teamed up with the kingdom of Syria or on some maps in some places called Aram. They've teamed up with those guys to form an alliance and they've been putting on pressure on the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, to join with them to form an alliance of three nations to help stand against Assyria. But so far, the king of Judah, King Ahaz, has refused to join in to partnership with these other two nations, with with Syria and with Israel. And so... Israel and Syria have been trying to put on the pressure. I'm sure that they used everything at their disposal. They probably, if they could have, they would have been putting on uh, stories on the Internet. Uh, I'm sure they started gossip and all kinds of any, subterfuge, anything they could do, spread disinformation, trying to influence the people of Judah to influence their king. Whatever things they tried, all the pressure they could didn't work, and so they turned from trying to influence Judah to they turned to outright war. And so Syria and Israel attacked the southern kingdom of Judah. Things were not going well in Judah. As they were attacked, they lost pretty badly to Syria and Israel. They suffered over a hundred thousand, it's actually a hundred and twenty thousand casualties. That's huge. Many of their citizens taken captive. If that weren't bad enough, while Judah is struggling and while they're, they're weakened, 
You have to the south the Edomites, the land of Edom. They decide to take advantage of the situation. They attack from the southeast. And they, they capture cities and capture people. And while that's going on out to the, to the west, the Philistines along the coast there, they attack from the west and again capture more cities and people. You could say that Judah's having a bad day, right? Things are really bad in Judah. And a desperate King Ahaz, trying to figure out what to do, he makes a secret pact, gets involved in secret negotiations with the king of Assyria, the emerging superpower, and makes strikes a deal with him that uh, the king of Assyria is going to come to his rescue and defend him against Israel and Syria. It's the stuff of movies, wars. Political intrigue, political plotting, secret deals. Now, just a little side note. The prophet Isaiah, as he is preaching and teaching and prophesying, he, is, he also says, here's how this thing is going to end up. And if you read through chapters 7 and 8, you'll find out what's going to happen. It's going to end that within 12 years, Syria and Israel, the big threat right now to King Ahaz and to Judah, they will be wiped out, destroyed by the Assyrians who will come in and conquer them. But his little plan for them to be, for Assyria to be his rescue is going to go awry because Assyria won't stop at Israel and Syria. They come on into Judah. And Judah is almost destroyed. Matter of fact, it says that they are up to their neck. The trouble is right here and they're just about to die. And God delivers them. Now, all that happens not under King Ahaz. It happens a few years after him with a guy named King Hezekiah. And we won't go into that story because it's not really the point. But all of this to say that right now as Isaiah is writing... He's talking to people who are in a horrible situation and says things are bad, but they're going to get worse. We can hardly begin to imagine what it must have been like. You're there in a not very large plot of ground and being attacked from all sides, having huge casualties, having people and cities captured. I imagine that they had some supply chain interruptions. I imagine they had inflation as products grow scarce. I imagine they had labor shortages as we've seen over a hundred thousand casualties. The threat of war is looming. I imagine that there were all kinds of people who were there, matter of fact, there were. There were factions of we should join up with Assyria. No, 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 no. We shouldn't go for Assyria. We should go for our brothers and sisters and join up with the Israelites and others, you know, with other ideas. There's, there's bickering, I'm sure, and all kinds of stuff going on. We can picture all that. Can you imagine being just Joe Citizen there? There you are just trying to, you know, run your little family uh, vineyard and take care of your family, but you've got all these problems weighing on you because everything you love, everything is in jeopardy, even your own life. That's their situation. Can you imagine that? 
Well, we're not in that situation, but every one of us can imagine things somewhat like that happening. I mean, here we are, average Joe citizen, and one day you wake up and there's a pandemic. You wake up and there's inflation. We wake up and there's problems, there's divisions, there's maybe you get a pink slip in your mailbox or you get fired over a Zoom call or the illness. There's a diagnosis from the doctor. It's cancer. In a moment, in a day, our whole world is turned upside down. Things that we love are in jeopardy. Our normal life is shattered, can happen very quickly. And I wonder, how should we respond in times of great trouble? Is there any lesson here in the text for us to see about, as we look at these folks, so any lessons to learn about how to handle times of trouble? Well, let's look and see what, what's going on in our passage Chapter 8, and we're going to pick up at verse 11. So we've backed up for our passage is chapter 9, but we're going back here. I've given some backstory, but let's look at the text. Chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me. This is Isaiah writing. God speaks to Isaiah. He says, with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. How should we respond in such a situation? The first thing that God says to Isaiah, He says, don't act like these people around you. Don't be like the people around you. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be bothered by all that they are bothered about. The people of Judah are all worked up over all the danger that they face. They're worked up all over all the suffering that they are enduring. They're worked up over all the political in- intrigue. And he says, don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Everybody's getting wrapped up. You know, they've been watching CNN and Fox News. And they've all got their hard and fast feelings about what's going on and what we should do and how we should fix this. And God says to Isaiah, don't get wrapped up in all that stuff. Don't get worried and bothered about all that. It's not that, by the way, that knowing anything about politics or having opinions is bad. That's not the point. He says, don't get, don't get wrapped up in that. Don't make that your world and don't make that your fear and don't make that your hope. Notice the next thing he says. Verse 13, he says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Don't fear what they fear. Instead, fear God. Honor Him. Honoring God is to to listen to Him and to follow Him. There's a message here for us today. Fear God and honor Him and everything else will work out. But not fearing God is a big mistake. He says, fear God, not your circumstances. Fear God, not your financial ruin. 
Fear God, not what other people may think of you. Fear God, not your enemy. If following God, if fearing God and following Him is not your priority, then you're in big trouble because whatever decision you make next, whatever action you take next is wrong. It doesn't matter. The one thing that matters above everything else is having things right with God. That was a problem here 700 B.C., and it's a problem today. When we set God aside and we get busy with our agendas and our plans and our opinions and we get wrapped up in all the stuff and we somehow think that that matters, if we've forgotten God, it is pointless. If we do not fear Him. We go on. Verse 14. And He, that's God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. God is speaking and He says, need to understand something. That God will become a sanctuary and stone of offense. God will be two things. Actually, He will be one thing to you. And it's one of two things. God will either be a sanctuary for you, a safe place, a place of security, a place of rest, a place of refuge, Or God will be a trap and a snare, a stone upon which you will stumble and be broken. God will be one of those two things to you, and the difference between the two is how you respond to Him. God is going to be both of those things to Israel and Judah. Some will trip on Him and be broken. Others will turn to Him and find God to be their sanctuary. That's the point. And God says, bind up this testimony. Bind it up. Seal it up. In other words, preserve it. Hang on to it. Cling to it. Because this is important. This is valuable truth to those who will listen to Him. That's what He says to my disciples, those who will follow Him. In other words, believer in Jesus Christ, brother and sister in Christ, This is important truth, something to take to the bank, something to write down and tuck it away where you pull it out and you remind yourself of this. When I fear and follow God, He is my sanctuary. When I depart from Him, put other things primary, my agendas, whatever, when I live in fear of other things, I'm going to fall over Him and be broken. Isaiah says, hey, (laughs) I'm in. Look at verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. He says, if that's the way it is, I want you to know, God, I'm on your side. I'm first in line. I'm going to follow you. Right now, it seems like God is hiding his face from the people of Judah, the, the southern kingdom. 
because they're, they're under God's judgment because they are sinning. They are wicked people. And he just says, even though it looks like you're hiding your face from us, I want you to know, God, I'm following you. I'll wait for you and I will hope in you. But that's not the response of most folks in his day. Not only is the nation of Judah in national turmoil, political turmoil, they are also in spiritual turmoil. Look at verses 19 and 20. Actually, before I read those, I'll just give a little detail that's not here in this text in Isaiah. You can find what's going on if you turn, and you can do this later when you get home, just mark down 2 Kings chapter 16, 2 Chronicles chapter 28. There you find chronicled this time in, in Judah's history where King Ahaz is on the throne. King Ahaz is a wicked man. And he, he has himself departed from God. And he has embraced fully worship of idols. He's promoted it in the land. He's helped finance it. He's helped be a champion for it. And, and idol, worshiping of idols has sprung up all over the land of Judah. Every high place, it says. On the street corners. It's pervasive in the, among the people of Judah. The people who are supposed to be God's people. It even got so bad that Ahaz constructs a worship center to worship the idol Molech. Connected to this, there is a furnace. And in that furnace, he brings his own son and burns his, his infant son in the fire as a sacrifice to this pagan god Molech. Not only does he do it, but then people... All through, the, all through the land begin to follow in his footsteps and they are burning their children, their sons, in the fire as an act of worship to this idol. That's how bad things had gotten in Israel. King Ahaz had set up idols. He had, he had profaned the temple of God by idols. And then he just later just shuttered the doors, closed up the temple, He ended any worship in God's temple. That's how bad things had gotten in Judah. Isaiah picks it up here in verse 19. And he gives us another example of how bad things were. says, and when they say to you, Isaiah, when the people say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, who chip and mutter. He says, Isaiah, the people are going to come to you and they're going to ask you to go to the mediums, people who talk to evil spirits, and to the necromancers, people who supposedly talk to the dead. Of course, they're all talking to demons. And he says, they're going to come to you and say, inquire of these folks to get some answers for us. These folks who chip and mutter They often say nonsense. So here's what he's saying. People, because they are living in fear of all that's going on, because they're living in hard times, people are going to want to know, what should we do? What should we do next? What can we do to protect ourselves, to save ourselves, to help ourselves? How can we do this? We need insight. We need wisdom that's beyond us. And they're going to come to you, Isaiah, 
the prophet of God and say, hey, Isaiah, we don't want to hear from God. So would you go get some information from some evil spirits for us? God says, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? God's being sarcastic, rightly so. They have a prophet who hears from God. That's how bad things are, but they don't want to hear from God. He said, we would rather go to the occult. May I say, brothers and sisters, it's like that today. Even sometimes among the folks who say they're Christians. They don't really want to hear what God says. And so they will go to find somebody or something that will say what they want. Matter of fact, that's what Timothy says is going to happen in the latter days. People will gather around them teachers who will say whatever it is that their itching ears want to hear. They'll listen to anything rather than the truth. People will believe, have you noticed that? People believe the most outrageous, foolish stuff. And they will believe evil lies because they do not want to hear God. They refuse to hear Him. Mm. That's what's going on in Judah at this time. How should we respond in times of spiritual turmoil like that? How should we respond in such a world as that? Well, verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they will have no dawn. Isaiah the prophet is crying. He's saying, how should we respond in this world? To the testimony, to the teaching, listen to God's word. There's the only thing to listen to. And if people won't listen to the Word of God, says there is no dawn. There is no light. They will believe lies. And they will live in darkness. That's the point. It was true in 734 B.C. And it's true in 2021. What's the result when people abandon God? What happens? We find the answer to that in verses 21 to 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God. And they will turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What happens when people abandon God? He says they will pass through the land, they will live their life, and eventually they will end up greatly distressed, greatly troubled, and they will end up hungry. Hungry doesn't mean, by the way, just hungry for food. Hungry means just unsatisfied, dissatisfied. They can't get no satisfaction. See, that's what happens when you abandon God. You end up empty. You end up troubled. 
Because when you walk away from God long enough and far enough, you end up creating a big mess for yourself. There's distress. He says when that happens, when they are troubled and when they are dissatisfied, ultimately they will get angry. And they will turn on their leaders, the king, to other leaders and they'll blame them. We're in this problem because of these political leaders we have. And then they'll turn to God and they'll blame God. We're in this mess because of you. And after they've looked upward and cursed God, they look downward at the world around them because that's all that's left. And he says, behold, when they look down, verse 22, he says, all there is is distress and darkness. There's only trouble and there are no answers. There's darkness And there's a gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a downward path that will continue to go down and down and down. It's a path of darkness and gloom that's one of their own making because they've chosen to refuse God. Now, with that background, we come to our passage. That was all the introduction. With that background, we come to our passage In chapter 9, we were answering the question, how did they get in this mess? And we see how they got there. Look at verse 1. It's marvelous. Now we go back and look at this. Look at that first sentence. But there will be no gloom for he who was, for her who was in anguish. Who was in anguish? Everybody. (laughs) In a deep, dark pit that they had dug for themselves. And he says, there will be no gloom. What we find here in verse 1 is some extraordinary good news. Good news. Against all of the background, all of this darkness into which Israel and Judah, by the way, remember they haven't hit bottom yet. Isaiah is preaching, he's warning that there's more to come, but that they won't change course. They're going to they're gonna double down and keep going until they plunge headfirst, headlong into all of this. There's a nevertheless. There's some good news. God is graciously providing through Isaiah a word of hope and a word of comfort to the very few, and there were some. There were some godly people in Israel and some godly people in Judah who still hadn't turned their back on God, who still feared God and loved God and followed God. And God is saying there's some good news. I want you to know there's a plan and we're still working a plan. And there's some good news and good day coming. Both Israel and Judah are going to endure dark times. Israel is going to be obliterated. Judah will almost be obliterated because God is punishing them for their wickedness. When we read here that God has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, those are two of the northern ten tribes of Israel. They were especially hard hit as the invasion came and as the suffering came and as the judgment came. They were ground zero for God's devastating judgment. But God says here, you go on in verse 1, in a latter time, In the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the nations. There's going to be light. There's going to be a great light. There's going to be relief. There's going to be restoration. 
You say, okay, pastor, that's all well and good. But we've been here and it's almost time to end. You haven't connected this to Christmas. And you haven't connected this at all to us. You wonder, is anything good going to happen here? Yeah. So we're going to fast forward. All right, we're going to fast forward to the birth of a baby 700 years later. A little over 700 years later. You know this story. Luke chapter 1. There's a baby boy who is born. And his name is John. At his birth, his father, who is an elderly priest, his father is filled with the Holy Spirit, it says there in Luke 1. And he begins to speak of prophecy And that prophecy ends with these words. Zacharias says, And you, child, John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give Light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, you don't have to look very hard to realize that that these words of this prophecy are taking us back to Isaiah chapter 9. The dawn, the light that dawns, the darkness, the people who are trapped and caught in darkness and misery, the shadow of death. You see, John, you know this, John is going to be the prophet, the prophet who prepares the way for the the Lord, the sunrise who is coming. The very light that Isaiah spoke of is what is being spoken of here. It's looking forward to the birth, not only of John the Baptist, but of Jesus Christ. This light that's going to come, this Prophecy makes it clear this light that's going to come is going to be a person and not just any person. He's going to be the Lord. Now, how is it that the Lord God becomes a person who comes to earth? Well, nobody had ever heard of such a thing, but God says it's going to happen. Of course, we know it's going to be Jesus who's going to be born a few months after John. We also know that from this prophecy of Zacharias that That He, this light, the One who's going to come, will provide salvation, forgiveness of sins. That He, this light who will come, will deliver us from the darkness, deliver us from the despair of that sin brings, deliver us from the death, the penalty of sin. This One who is the light who will come will guide us into peace, Most especially, most significantly, peace with God. A restored relationship, a reconciled relationship with God. See, that talk of light in the darkness in Isaiah 9 ties to the birth of Christ right here. But there's more. About 30 years later, Jesus now begins His public ministry. And we read in Matthew chapter 4 as Jesus begins His ministry, Now when He heard that John, the John the Baptist who had 
who was just read about, who was born just before him and would be prepare the way. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that when, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, you might recognize these words. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the, in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What Matthew is telling us is that the words that Isaiah spoke 700 years before pointed exactly to what Jesus did at this moment when He turned and went into Galilee. You see, you might remember that we read that back there in verse 1 of chapter 9 that God had brought Zebulun and Naphtali to contempt. To shame. The northern kingdom of Israel was laid low when they were destroyed and wiped out by Assyria. And the Assyrians laughed at their devastation they had caused. They were brought to shame. But even more than that, in the years that followed, the Assyrians brought people from all over the world and they brought them and basically exiled them, banished them to come live in the the ruins in this devastated kingdom of northern kingdom of Israel. And so all of these foreigners came in and lived there. Now in the centuries that followed, some of the Israelites made their way back. They began to live there and settle there in the land of Israel, in the old northern kingdom. But the region became known, even as Isaiah had predicted, became known as Galilee of the Gentiles because there were so many foreigners there. Or Isaiah also says Galilee of the nations. For that very reason, the Jews who lived in the south, the Jews who had lived in the old southern kingdom of Judah, the Jews who were there looked up at the, at the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern part of Israel now in the time of Christ when Jesus comes on the scene. And they looked at the Jews there and they were like, they looked on with disdain and contempt because that land was polluted, you see, by all of the Gentiles there. And the Jews who lived there were corrupted by all the Gentiles who lived up there. And so they looked at this with contempt. From the time that land had been destroyed in Isaiah's day until the time of Jesus, that region laid low in contempt. We get a little light of understanding, a little glimmer of understanding. We realize that Jesus came on the scene And when we read Zebulun, to most of us it means nothing. It was one of those twelve tribes. But when you realize that Zebulun, the region named Zebulun, is where the city of Nazareth is, where Jesus grew up. And the the region Naphtali 
is another name for the region that we commonly call Galilee. And what we realize is the light of the glory of God incarnate brilliantly was displayed in the place that had for seven centuries been synonymous with shame and contempt. You may recall when Jesus, on a couple of occasions, when Jesus was introduced, he People said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They called him the Nazarene or the Nazarite. That wasn't a compliment. That was like calling somebody, you know, a hillbilly or worse. Now, there is a powerful and beautiful truth here. We don't want to miss it. Of all the places on earth that God could have chosen When God the Father sent God the Son, when God took on flesh and lived among us, walked among us, of all the places in the world where God could have chosen to send Jesus, God chose to send Him to Galilee. That's not a mistake. There was a message there. On to those who live in the darkness, in the valley of the shadow of death. To those people, a light has dawned. And you see what we realize is all the picture here of Judah and Israel in their darkness, all the way along, it's a picture of you and me in our own sinful condition. And there's a message here. And when Jesus came to Galilee to shine the light To their minister among the people, the glory of God shone through His person. It's shown through His miracles. It's shown through His teaching. He spent almost His entire three years of public ministry there, not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, in Galilee. It's because the Son of Man didn't come to be ministered to, but He came to minister. He came to seek and save those who were lost. And He didn't come just to save the Jews. He came to save Gentiles, which is why it's significant that He was in Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, what's here is a powerful and beautiful picture of the grace of God. A living picture of God's marvelous grace. That Jesus Christ can meet you and me in our sin in our brokenness, in our darkness. And He can save you. He can save me and transform us. There's not a person with breath in their lungs and blood in their veins who is too far gone that Jesus can't save you from your sin. So I don't know what... I don't know if you're here this morning, you may think, I can't be good enough. I can never... I can never be saved. The message in the Scripture is, yes, you can. There's some of us who have family members or friends and we think they're too far gone. No, they're not. What a wonderful picture. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. 
that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the invitation that Jesus gave, John 3.16. It's the invitation still given today to any one of us, anyone listening at home, The amazing thing is I would think everybody in the world wants that. Everybody in the world would want eternal life. Everybody in the world would want the rest of the blessings that come in this passage if you go on in Isaiah 9. There's joy and there's peace and there's the coming kingdom. There's resurrection. There's heaven. I think everybody would want that. Right after John 3.16, you know what he said just three verses later? Jesus said, and this is judgment, that light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There were people in Isaiah's day who would turn to God and find that God was a refuge. He was a place of safety, a place of salvation. But there was the majority of people in that day that would refuse to listen And they were ensnared and broken. And Jesus said, it's the same when He arrived. He came unto His own, we read earlier in John 1, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God. Well, what a beautiful picture of God's grace. What a beautiful reminder to you and me if we're believers in Jesus Christ. We need to be faithful be out there proclaiming this news that everybody in this dark world needs to hear. There's a Savior. His name is Jesus. He paid for your sin. Trust in Him today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this marvelous, marvelous text. Just a little verse that seems so odd and so different and so irrelevant in many ways to us, or maybe at best it's warm and fuzzy. What we find there is just a miracle of Your marvelous grace that will save even people like us. Thank You for sending Jesus. Thank You for this good news. Thank You for this time of the year where we have opportunity to celebrate it and to proclaim it to a world who is celebrating it, the birth of Jesus, but has no idea what they're celebrating. May we tell them about the good news, the light that arrived the day that Jesus was born. In His name we pray. Amen.